Thank you for choosing to listen to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. For more resources and information on our church or our team, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Good morning. Good afternoon. I don't even know what it is anymore. As technically, it's morning. Good, yeah, it's still morning. Good morning, Hope Rock Church. Uh, nice to see everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us online. If you're joining us online... And if you're visiting, welcome. It's so good to have you all. Two quick announcements. Uh, to, not tomorrow, Tuesday night, 7 p.m. is our next worship night. So it'll be our fourth worship night that we've ever hosted. Uh, every single time we host one of these, they get better and better because the band gets better and better. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was just being, I was being naughty there. Uh, sorry, I was being mischievous. The band doesn't get better and better. God's presence fills us more and more. We come expectant. The band is amazing. They always have been amazing, but we come with a greater level of expectancy. And so we really are experiencing God's move in a greater way every single time. So if you can be there, that's on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Childcare will be provided if you have children. They'll be looked after, um, and it'll really be a good time of fellowship with all of us together. Second announcement is on the 4th of October, which is not tomorrow's Monday, but the Monday after, at 6.30 a.m., we are starting a new Key Woman Ladies Morning Bible Study. I was saying to Mark this morning, this is officially the meanest looking ad we've got in a church. It makes Fight Club look like, uh, like a bunch of, uh, I don't know what, but this is, this is this power, bro. Mark, we've got to up our game here, the men's side. That, okay, in the octagon. There we go. You've got to take them. But if you are a lady and you want to join, this is a morning study. We do have an evening study as well, which is currently underway. But if you're interested, please chat to Kat, uh, and she'll be able to give you the information how you can register and how you can get involved. Over the last four weeks, we've been unpacking various kingdom values as a local church. Uh, as a reminder, all of these values are really just a mechanism for us as individuals, as well as us as a church, to stay headed in the right direction. So that's why we've been doing this series. Uh, and uh, over the last four weeks, we've unpacked four different topics with the aim of helping us move into a place where we look less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus. The first week we looked at this concept, or at least the, the reality of local church, community, and how important it is to be connected to one, be a part of one. Then we looked at the global church, how important that is in terms of God's plan for the world. That's the mechanism that God has chosen to change the world. And although we might see a frail, fragile, and in, in some cases a weak church, what we see in Scripture is a powerful, advancing church, a church that's on the offense and not the defense. Then we looked at maturity, how all of us have to grow up, you know, in terms of our faith. God wants us to grow into a greater representation of Him on this earth. So we want to be more Christ-like. Uh, Jesus is coming back, not for a child, but for a bride, right? So we've got to grow up in maturity. And then last week, Sunday, Tim did a good job just helping us understand what it means to live a supernaturally empowered life. And that means we are a people that don't live within the constraints of the natural world. We set our hope in much bigger things. In fact, we are supernatural people. I know it sounds strange when we say that, but we are supernatural people who believe in a supernatural, all-powerful, and all-omniscient, all omnipotent, and omnipresent God. And so that's the life we've been called to live. My hope is that in this series, we've all benefited. We've learned something so far, maybe things that we can apply to our own lives, maybe areas that we need to adjust, uh, and also us as a church that we've been able to shore up our foundations a little bit. I say that because this morning we're going to be shifting our gears a little bit. We're going to be changing our direction marginally. We're still going to be looking at kingdom values. However, over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at values through the lens of the Reformation. Now, I don't know 
how many of you are clued up with what the Reformation was, what it stood for, what it meant, what it achieved, uh, or maybe you've never heard of it. It doesn't matter what you've come in here knowing. What I'd like to do is just really give us a short introduction just to the Reformation itself. I think that'll be helpful to set the scene. We are going to unpack this as we go through it in a, in, in a bit more detail. We look at different elements of the Reformation over the next six weeks. But for this morning, it's really just about setting a little bit of a platform for us to launch off. Okay, so let's do that. 504 years ago, on October the 31st, 1517, a gentleman by the name of Martin Luther, he's that strappingly handsome young man there on the etching, whatever that thing is, photographs didn't exist then, who went to the Wittenberg Cathedral where he was the doctor of theology and he nailed to the door of the cathedral his 95-point thesis, a thesis that ultimately raised all the objections and questions that he had about the church, the state of the church and the state that the church was in. In fact, at that stage, what you realize is that for a number of centuries, if we're, if we're honest and fair, the church had started to move away from the truth of the gospel. It started to incorporate a whole bunch of things that weren't scriptural, in fact, that were extra-biblical, and it had become very corrupt, as humanity tends to do. This is not an indictment on any one person. The fact is we all tend to behave that way when we are left to our own devices. And so Martin Luther realized this thing. And I say that because what you'll find is the Reformation is often attached to him as an individual. You know, if you've ever watched the movie Luther, I don't know if anyone ever has watched it. It's a great movie to figure out a little bit about his life, and it's really well done as well. It's not one of those boring, you know, old Ben Hur type, although that was a good movie back in the day. It's a great movie, but we often think of the Reformation, and we just think of Martin Luther. There were a bunch of other people involved too. Lots of other characters in the Reformation, part of the Reformation. In fact, it even started probably 100 years before Martin Luther wrote his thesis. Anyway, I say that because it's not just about him, although he is the personality that we often think of. Probably because he took the boldest stand against the church of the day. He went up to the church and he stood in front of them. In fact, he went to the Pope and said, listen, this is wrong. What we're doing is wrong. We've missed the mark along the way. And so let's just maybe unpack a little bit about this man. He was a normal human being. Wasn't, super, wasn't like a superhuman. He wasn't Superman. He was just a normal guy born in Germany uh, on November 10th, 1483 in a town called, town called Eisleben in Germany. Born to good parents. His parents wanted to become a lawyer. Uh, and so he honored his parents. He went to law school. But then on July 2nd, 1505, on the way home from law school, he gets caught up in this terrible thunderstorm. Uh, I never knew that thunderstorms happened terribly in Germany, but apparently they do, and they did then. Um, got scared, thought he was going to die, and so he cries out to God. In fact, it's not really God that he's crying out to in that moment. He cries out to St. Anne. And he says, if you just save me, if you don't let me die in this thunderstorm, if I don't get struck by lightning... I'm going to commit my life to the monastery. I'm going to become a monk. Needless to say, Martin Luther never died that day. Uh, we know that because history continues. Uh, and what actually ended up happening was he lived up to his commitment. He became an Augustinian monk. Now you'd think that, okay, well, that's great. He's a monk now. Everything's going to be different. He can get to know the gospel. He can get to know the Bible. He can read the word for himself. Unfortunately, that's not how things worked. For two years, in fact, his first two years of being in the monastery, he never read the Bible. He was taught philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, the great Greek philosophers, the great Roman philosophers, great philosophers in general. And then for the next two years, he taught other people philosophy. So for the first four years in college, in Bible school, in the monastery, he never even saw the scriptures. It was only four years after he had become a monk that his good friend, Johann von Staupitz, I love that name, he ultimately led him and admitted Martin Luther into the Bible. Now, what that means is he basically unlocked the door where the Bible was hiding. And Martin Luther could finally read the Bible for himself. After four 
years. He eventually became a doctor in theology, stayed at the Wittenberg Cathedral where he stayed for the rest of his life. But it was five years after he got to read the word of God for himself that he nailed to those cathedral doors his 95-point thesis. And fundamentally what Martin Luther realized and one of the greatest rediscoveries of the Reformation in its totality is that God's word comes to us in the form of a book. And that book is the Bible. It's totally inspired, 100% authoritative for our lives, not just 2,000 years ago, but to this day. And what frustrated Martin Luther, amongst many other reformers, was the fact that in this book contains the keys to the gospel. The story of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died on the cross for our sins. And so keeping this book out of the general man's hand was a sin because everybody should be entitled to read this word. It wasn't for a select few people who said they could interpret the scriptures for everyone else. It was for everybody to read. And it's off that sort of platform that the Reformation was launched. And in that, Martin Luther, along with his buddies, other people, and just to be clear, Martin Luther wasn't a perfect individual. I want to be very clear on that. He was a human being just like any one of us. He, he, made some crazy he did some crazy things when he got a bit older. I'm saying that because we mustn't idolize him, but God used him in a great way. It was from this platform of the scripture being, you know, completely inspired and authoritative in our lives that they developed another set of five keys, five keys called the five solas, the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas essentially mean the five alone statements, the big statements that can stand on their own, statements that needed to correct the course that the church had been headed in. And these are the five statements. The first one is sola scriptura, which means the word of God is the final authority in our lives. The Bible alone is where we need to take our instruction. Now that doesn't mean, a lot of people have taken that to mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. That's not what the, the reformers were saying. What they were saying is this is the final authority. The Holy Spirit inspired this book and he speaks to us today. But he always confirms what scripture says. The second thing is sola gratia because it's by grace that we've been saved. And it's not by a system of works. It's not by our religiosity. At that stage, the church had started to teach on this thing called indulgences. And so the bigger your crime in terms of sin, the bigger your payment was to the church. And then you were forgiven. Why? Because the Pope of the day, he was such a crazy guy. He spent so much money building his palace that he basically bankrupted the church. And so to counteract that, he said, you know what? This forgiveness thing and confession is not enough. We need people to pay. In fact, if you pay, you can be forgiven. But they said, no, it's by grace that we are saved. Not by what we pay, not by what we do, and not by our religion. The third one was sola fide, which meant it's by faith alone that we are saved. Faith in what? Faith in, in the Bible and the gospel therein. Faith that the words in this Bible are true and faith that the God of the universe did what he promised he would do. And then it's, of course, faith in Christ, solus Christus. It's through Christ alone that we are saved. And Christ alone, interestingly, is the head of the church. There is no other head above Christ. He is the head. He is the preeminent authority in the church, both in our local church, but in the universal church too. People had forgotten that. And then our last point was sola Deo Gloria. God alone deserves the glory. Not a king, not a preacher, not a pope or a priest, not a bishop or a cardinal, but God alone gets the glory. These five truths ultimately became what the Protestant Reformation was all about. These five truths truths are what we as most, non, like we're a non-denominational church, but we are Protestant in our faith. Churches stand to these beliefs even today. I say this to you because over the next six weeks, we're going to unpack each of these things in detail. And you might be thinking, but 
Why is it necessary? I mean, the Reformation happened. Do we really need to go back to it? I want to say that we do. And the reason I say that we need to is because these truths are under attack today. The same battle that the Reformers fought for 500 years ago is the same battle we are fighting today. We're fighting it against the culture. We're fighting it against the world. And we are fighting it within the church. And so it's important that we go back to these five values. In addition, if you don't think there is an attack on it, I think in some cases the attack today is far worse than it was then because it's more insidious. It's hidden and it's hard to pick up. In terms of what we're going to do today, because from next week we'll unpack one of these each week, starting with Sola Scriptura. In terms of what we're going to do this morning, I feel like that God wanted me to set up this series and set it up in a way that we could frame the entire series going from this moment onwards. And that was to really pose a question to all of us. And the question is simply this. Is it time for a modern day revival? Is it time for a modern day reformation? So let's pray and then hopefully we can figure that out together. Father, thank you for the amazing group of people that you've added to our local church. Thank you that you are the King, the Lord, Savior, and everything in between of this local church. We worship you, Jesus. You are high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and we are so privileged to be in your presence. This church is not about anything else but about glorifying you. You deserve all the glory. You deserve all the praise. You deserve all the honor. Do what you need to do in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I also just do, before I get into the scriptures, I want to wish Wayne happy birthday. Happy birthday, Wayne. Now, don't be singing, bro. I promised your, I promised your granddad we wouldn't sing. So as I was praying this week on, on what we could do to try and set the series up and answer the question, you know, is it time for a modern day reformation? I felt like the Lord led me to a particular passage of scripture, and it was Isaiah chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. We are going to have the scriptures up on the screen as well. But what's interesting is the Lord gave me this verse in a dream. And on, so Monday morning I woke up and I had this dream the night before and I had Isaiah 6. And I felt like God was saying we need to use this as the platform. So I trust and I am trusting that God's going to speak to all of us through it. A little bit of context because that's important. Often we can read scriptures without knowing you know, the context, the time and the place that they were written in. Isaiah 6 or Isaiah's book was written by the prophet Isaiah. He prophesied for about 60, 70 years, no more, in fact 80 years. Uh, almost, uh, 740 BC to, to 680, so 60 years. He lived during the decline of Israel. At that point, Israel was on the downward spiral. They weren't growing anymore. They weren't conquering anymore. In fact, they were going backwards, and that's where he lived. He lived under the looming Assyrian invasion where they would eventually come and take a whole bunch of people into exile, not just the Assyrians, but the ba Babylonians would do it with the, with the nation of Judah as well. Uh, and that's the time that this crazy prophet lives in. I say crazy because he was up against, you know, a real battle at that stage. In terms of where we pick up the text this morning, all that Isaiah has done up until this point in Isaiah chapter 6 is given us a brief or a very broad, not specific overview on the current health of the nation of Israel in terms of their spiritual health. And so what he's painted for us is a gloomy picture, a picture that says that the nation of Israel has turned away from their God and they're no longer following the God that saved them out of Egypt. That's essentially what Isaiah has been telling us. I say that because I think it's important for us to pause at this point and consider where we find ourselves living today. Look at the age that we live in. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, right? You know, if you ever looked at human history, what you'll notice is it's patterned. We keep going around the same circles over and over again. People make the same bad decisions and we come around the mountain again. It's like the nation of Israel just literally trundling around the mountain. That's how the world works. That's how we work as broken, sinful human beings. 
And so whilst the nation of Israel was in a place then where they became hard of hearing God, I believe that we as a nation, as a people, and as even the church at times have come to another place where we're also hard of hearing God too. And that's partly why I think God wants to bring us to this verse today or this passage. Because I think it's on this backdrop of us understanding that there are times in our lives where our spiritual health isn't all that good either. That we can finally start to look at this question for what it means. Is a modern day reformation needed? Well, I think fundamentally we can all agree that it is. But I do think we need to agree on some of the fundamentals first. First fundamental is how we see God matters. For a modern day reformation to happen, we have to have the correct view of God. Isaiah 6 verse 1 starts like this. In the year that King Uzziah died. I just want to pause there. What you are going to hear in the rest of the verse is a magnificent picture of God. It's a, it's a magnificent picture of the King of Kings. But it starts off with a statement. There's a, almost a marker that gets put into this point of Isaiah where we can start to determine the times and the history. It's the year that King Uzziah died. Things changed. That's fundamentally what's going on here. Uzziah, just a bit of interest or interesting information about him. He was a good king, a king that followed after the heart of David. He was a king that conquered nations around him for many years of his kingship. In fact, he served 52 years. Probably, the, I think it's the longest reigning king. Towards the end of his life, he got quite arrogant, though. He started to believe his own press. He believed he was better than everybody else, and he thought he was even better than David, probably. And so what he started to do was decided that he could now go and worship God himself. He didn't need priests anymore. He could go burn sacrifices and, and offer incense at the altar, which was a sacrilege. The kings and the priests were separate in those days, according to God, by God's design. And so Isaiah was a good king, but he wasn't perfect. But you'd think that at this point in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is probably sad, grumpy, moaning, probably wondering how are we going to get through this now? The last king, the last good king is dead. But it's in that moment that God gives Isaiah a revelation. He says, I saw the Lord lifted or seated upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. See, Isaiah might have been, and I'm assuming this, this is, not, this is not in the text, I'm reading into this, what I think may have been going on in his heart. He's probably worried, but God gives him a vision, a vision of himself. This powerful picture of God sitting in the temple, the same temple that Solomon built. And he's seated on the throne, high and lifted up. You know, in, in Exodus, when the nation of Israel disobeys God, you know, again, you know, God sends these fiery serpents. And the remedy for this is that Moses has to go and create a staff, put a serpent on the staff and lift it up. And everyone's got to look at the serpent. It was a picture that was throwing forward to Jesus Christ. But the same wording is used, high and lifted up. The serpent was lifted up. Okay, and that serpent was representation of what we ultimately look at today, which is Jesus on the cross. But this is the same picture. The Lord is seated on the throne. He's high and lifted up, which means he's ruling and he's reigning. You see, in the natural, the kingdom might be in trouble. In the natural, the king has died. In the natural, he doesn't know how he's going to facilitate, how people are going to be looked after, who's going to pull the nation in line again. But God's saying, don't forget that I'm on the throne, Isaiah. And I'm not just on the throne, I'm in charge of everything about the throne. And I think that God wants to remind us of that fact this morning, because we live in a world, honestly, that is full of despair. I mean, for real. I mean, I hope you've stopped watching the news by now. But if you haven't, and you sometimes catch a glimpse of it, it's just misery. Misery everywhere you look. The world's falling apart. The stock market's crashing. It's going up. It's crashing. It's going up. I know that it's always the same, ultimately. But... It just seems like everything's a mess. And we can, like Isaiah, probably think to ourselves, what are we going to do? 
The person we voted for never won. This person's winning. That's happening. This is going on. We are in desperate times. No, God wants us to know this morning that he is on the throne. Hope Rock Church, I am on the throne and I'm high and lifted up. There is nobody above me. Nothing that happens without me knowing. That gives me huge amounts of comfort. I say this to you because where we see God today matters. Not just how we see him, but where we see him. If he is victorious, then everything comes into the right perspective. If he's not on the throne, what is? Because whatever's on the throne of your heart will be the very thing that determines how you feel. And I'm preaching to myself because I can put things on the, on the throne so quickly. Before Jesus. Verse 2 continues. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is a powerful picture of the holiest God that we can ever have. I mean, it's the only, he's the only true God, the only creator God of the universe. But he's so awesome, and he's so holy, and he's so powerful that the Bible says seraphs worshipped him. I know in the ESV it says seraphim, but actually in the original text it's the word seraph. It's in fact the only time the word seraph is used. The word seraph literally means, translated, it means burning ones. These aren't just angels that are worshipping God. These are fire angels. How mean is that, guys? These are fire angels, on fire, bright like the shining sun, worshipping God with six wings, two wings that cover their faces. Why? Because as bright as they are, the brilliance of the God that they serve outshines them. They can't even stand in his presence and look at God. With two wings, they cover their feet. Why? It tells us that they are not going to go anywhere unless they're sent by God. They're at his command. Fire angels listen to the God of the universe. And with two wings, they fly. Reminding us that they are available, ready to do whatever God wants them to do. And they say something. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not once, not twice, but three times. When the Bible says anything three times, you better stop. And you better read it again and read it again. And just let that concept of holiness marinate in your heart. I don't believe that we in the Western culture have a very good concept of holiness. I think we've made up in our minds what holiness is. Sometimes we think of holiness as somebody wearing a white gown and maybe a white sort of yamaka on their head. Or we think of holiness as a Tibetan monk you know, praying in the lotus position. We think of that, those pictures of holiness. Holiness is fire, all-consuming, friends. It's a white-hot fire that radiates from the eyes of God. That's the holiness. And that just blows my mind when I think about it. Because holiness is the character that defines the God that we serve. Do you know that? That is the character. There is nothing, no being on, the, on this earth or created being that's ever created that will ever match God in his holiness. God is the only being, being that is completely pure, who is completely just, and who is completely dead set on rectifying all the sin that's in this world. And that's why these seraphs worship him. And I say all of this to you because it begs a question. Do we see God today as holy? Or do we just see God as a get-out-of-jail-free card, the genie in the lamp, in the lamp or the person that's going get to get us out of all the trouble that the world's in at the moment? He's far bigger than all of those things, by the way. He's holy. I ask this because how we see God, God matters. Because if we're not confronted by God's holiness, if we're not floored by his holiness, if we can't even look up because the weight and the glory of God is pushing us down, then we'll never see the need for a modern day reformation. Truly. 
The second thing that I believe God wants to show us is how we see ourselves matter. So it's not just about seeing God for who he is. We have to see ourselves for who we are. It's a little bit of introspection. We have to be honest with ourselves. Isaiah says this in verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah gets this glimpse of God, and then God shakes the foundations. Smoke fills the temple. Why? Because if Isaiah had to spend another millisecond looking at God, he would have exploded. I believe. I'm just, again, I like Star Wars. I like science fiction. That's how I'm viewing it in my mind. But for real, God hides himself in the smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Hmm. You know, at this point, if Isaiah was a modern day preacher, he would have written a book. He would have gotten hold of TBN and said, hey guys, I got the story of the century, but I saw God. And you won't believe it, he's awesome. I saw seraphs too, those are pretty awesome too. Would have had a revival conference maybe, I don't know. I mean, I know that's probably what I would have done, right? I would have told everybody. But Isaiah repents. That's what he does. You know, when we're confronted by God's holiness, his absolute perfection, there is nothing in us that wants to boast about anything, friends. All we want to do is get on our knees and repent. Woe is me. I don't think we hear those words enough in the church. I don't think I say those words enough. Now, I'm not saying God wants us to be in a position of feeling sorry for ourselves every day and you know, crawling around the floor. I'm the dirt of the earth and all of that stuff. I mean, we are king's kids. Christ in us is the hope of glory. But I do think there's a reality to repentance, a, re- a reality to us losing sight of the value of repentance. And it's because we've lost sight of who we truly are. You see, Isaiah knows he's a sinner. He knows it. He's a sinner. He's a man of unclean lips. We'll get to this a bit later. But we live in a world where this notion has perpetuated itself across society that says there is no such thing as a bad person. There is no such thing as bad people in this world anymore because everybody's good. You know, I was reading and it just it horrified me. And I'm going to say this. There's, there's this movement that's trying to make pedophilia legal. I'm sorry, there is no, there's no way in my, in my world that I can ever justify that. I'm sorry, I don't care. But all of a sudden, that's not bad anymore. It's just people's choice. And so the point I'm trying to make is when we lose sight of our sin, we lose sight of the awesomeness of the gospel that Jesus came and died for. You see, if we don't see ourselves for who we truly are, then we'll never really see the gospel for what it truly is. In fact, the gospel's worthless without a concept of our sin. And so what do we do? We butter up sin. We call it mistakes, right? We've all made mistakes. I mean, we heard that my kids tell me all the time. I made a mistake, Dad. You know, you know I stole something. I made a mistake. What? No, that's not a mistake. <laughs> you don't mistakenly steal something. You thought about it. You processed it in your mind, and you went and you stole it. It's premeditated rebellion. That's what it is, right? Now, I get it. I've said it too. You know, you mess up. I've gone and used that same excuse. Oh, I made a mistake. No, 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 no. Not a mistake. Let's call sin sin. Jeremiah tells us that there's no such thing as mistakes. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things. In fact, he says it's desperately sick. Sin is not a mistake. It's a sickness. And unlike coronavirus, this sickness has a 100% mortality rate. It kills everybody. There is nobody on this earth, barring Jesus Christ, that's ever been raised from the dead and stayed alive. Sickness, sin, kills us all but we treat it casually as if it's something that isn't all that bad and so let me ask the question do we see ourselves as inherently good people do we see this world as an inherently good place 
Maybe we see ourselves as just bad people trying to become better versions of ourselves. Or do we see ourselves for what we truly are, dead people in desperate need of a resurrection? Again, I ask this because if we see ourselves and how we see ourselves matters. Because if we aren't first confronted by our sin and sickened by it, then why would we ever believe that a modern day reformation is even needed? But there is hope. There is hope, friends. You guys are leaving here thinking, this guy just beat us down today. Just remember, I'm, I'm preaching to myself too. Because the third point is how we see the atonement matters as well. Isaiah 6, 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal and he had take, that he had taken from the altar with the tongs. And he had touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Earlier on, we heard Isaiah testify to the fact that he knows that he was a man of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I am in a nation of people who have unclean lips. That's what Isaiah says to God. It's interesting. The Bible says that what the heart is full of, the mouth speaks. The problem Isaiah has is with his mouth. It's what's coming out of his mouth. It's the garbage that's spewing out of him. It's the faithlessness. It's the irreverence towards God. It's the glorifying of other gods in him and in the nation that he serves. You think, but we don't worship foreign gods. We do all the time, actually. We worship the gods of wealth, prosperity, health, children. We put them up on pedestals. We have got so many gods in this Western culture of ours, it, it, it makes, you know, the, I don't know, just craziness. Isaiah is saying, I understand, Lord, that my mouth has said things, glorified things that shouldn't be glorified. And I'm saying this to you today in a convicted state because I'm guilty of this. There are many times in my life where I've given glory to the wrong thing. Where I've allowed myself to say things that I shouldn't say or even worse, keep quiet when I shouldn't keep quiet. We think that silence is golden. It's not. Sometimes our silence is a sin. You see, there are times where we are called to stand up for what we believe in, to stand up for the God of this Bible and to say, you know, no more. I'm not going to listen to that nonsense. I love you and I appreciate you and I, and I really do. But I have to stand up for what I believe in too. God's given us a voice. Sometimes our silence says a lot too. Now, I'm not saying let's go out there and bash everybody out there. That's not my point because Jesus came to love everyone. But Jesus also never kept quiet. Whew. The seraphim comes and... In the case of Isaiah, it's because he knows that he's a sinner. What's interesting, before I tell you about the seraphim, is that Isaiah has no idea how he's going to fix this problem. All he knows is he's a man of unclean lips. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Notice, Isaiah doesn't say, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to fix it. These are, these are the things that I need to do. This is how many times I need to do X, Y, and Z for God to love me again. He just says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Okay? So there's an awareness of his problem. But guess what? That's all God needs. It's called repentance. So Isaiah repents. God sends a seraphim with a coal in his hands and he cleans his mouth. The very thing that's causing him to sin. He wipes it clean and he says these words. He says, your sins have been atoned for. Think of where that coal was taken from. That coal was taken from the altar. What was put on the altar? Sacrifices. What were the sacrifices for? For sin. That coal comes from the same altar where sacrifices were sin for sin were made. And what God was saying to Isaiah is, I have paid the price for your sins in full. Does that remind you of something? It reminds us of Jesus. God's telling Isaiah, your works will not save you. Isaiah, your religion will not save you. The sacrifice I gave to you will save you. Paul tells us it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We have been made alive together with Christ. He is the sacrifice. In verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not as a result of your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just like that burning coal extinguished the sin of Isaiah, Jesus Christ on the cross extinguished our sin once and for all. And so whilst we do have a good understanding and should have a good understanding of our own sin, what we have to understand is that that sin has been forgiven, paid in full. Do we see atonement as something that we need to continuously strive for in our own strength? Do we see atonement as something we can do or something that we have control over or do we see it for what it is? The final transaction that will ever have to be paid in full. And guess what? Our sin is not just hidden away by God. It is forgotten by God. The Bible says that God will cast our sin as far as, from the, as far as the east is from the west. There is no beginning, no end to where that sin will go, friends. God has paid it in full. We have been atoned for. He bought us with his blood. And the reason why I ask this is because how we see the atonement matters. If we don't believe and trust in the magnitude of what was done for us on the cross, if we don't believe that the work of the cross is final, we will never see the need for a modern day reformation. Because we'll just be working in another system of works again. I'm going to close now, Mark. You guys can come up. The last thing that I think matters for us is we have to understand that being available matters to God. God asks an interesting question in verse 8. I wish we could read it all this morning, but we really don't have time. I suppose we don't have anyone coming after us, so maybe let's just do the whole thing. We'll read from Isaiah to Revelations. I'm just kidding. God asks an interesting question in Isaiah 6, 8. He says this, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? It's like God's asking a question. The only other person in the room is Isaiah. Okay? The only person in the room is Isaiah. God says, Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Now you might be thinking, Well, where is he going to go? And what is he going to say? Remember, Isaiah wasn't the only one with unclean lips. There was a nation of unclean lips. Isaiah was a representative of the sins of the nation. The same sins that Isaiah had were the same sins that society had. And so when God says, who will go for us? Who will we send? What is he sending him for? He's sending him to take the message of forgiveness. God was saying, if I can forgive you, Isaiah, I can forgive anybody. But what's powerful about this is God chooses to use Isaiah. You see, when we think about it, God doesn't need Isaiah. He could have done it on his own. God could have decided to just, at the click of his fingers, destroy the entire world, restart again, just like he did at the flood. But no, God says, who will go for me? Who can take this message of forgiveness and take it to these people with unclean lips? And he chooses Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah knew what it meant to be forgiven. And we miss this so often. Isaiah's sin qualified him to be the prophet to the nation. You see, Isaiah knew what it meant to be forgiven himself. And because he was forgiven, he could take the message of forgiveness out there. And it wouldn't be me talking down to you and telling you a story. I can tell you about God's forgiveness because I've been forgiven. And I feel like there's people that live under the rock and the shame of their sin for their entire lives. You're so scared to tell people what you've been through and what happened before you knew Jesus and before you knew His redemptive power or even what happened to you after you got saved because maybe you sinned at some point in your life. 
but that thing's been hanging over you like a cloud and you don't want to talk about it to anyone because you know that they'll just judge you and think that you're a terrible person. What happens if that sin qualifies you to bring salvation to somebody who needs it? What is if Isaiah just said, you know, Lord, I'm not going to do this. I'm embarrassed. I don't want to tell people I was worshipping other false gods. Isaiah could have said, not me, Lord. Send somebody else. Do you know that Isaiah is the only prophet in, in the entirety of Scripture that volunteers to be a prophet? Nobody else does. You can look through the entire Bible. No prophet volunteers. Everyone actually runs away from the job like Jonah. Isaiah says, no, no, I'm coming. And I think it has to do with the fact that he was forgiven in this moment. What have you been forgiven for? Now, I'm not saying go glorify your sin and go shout it from the rooftops and say, look at me, I'm the man. I was this guy and I did all this crazy stuff and I killed people and whatever. It doesn't have to be like that. But God's given you a voice and a voice that has a story. And that story is that Jesus forgave me for all of my sin. Now, we might think to ourselves, what does that mean for us today? Why are you even saying this, Marco? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Well, guess what? This is what Isaiah says in chapter 5. In verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah has given you an idea of what the nation of Israel is like. They're in a world that's lost its moral compass. There is no objective truth anymore. Because guess what? Whatever your morality is and whatever your idea of morality, that's fine. It's called relative morality. Whatever auntie thinks is truth is good for him. What I think is truth is good for me. And nobody has any objective say in anything anymore. I'm saying this to you because guess what he starts with? Woe. You know what woe means? It means there's big trouble coming. Destruction. Doom. Punishment. Eternally. Hell. And we can stand by and watch it happen. We live in a world where the nation of Israel was. We live in a world that has lost its mind, friends. We live in a church that's lost its mind too sometimes. Things that we knew for a fact we're not going to honor God 30 years ago. Now all of a sudden, maybe, you know, who knows, if we massage it in this particular direction, it might work. You know, the question that God asked Isaiah 2,700 years ago, whom shall I send and who will go for me, is the same question that God asked Martin Luther, John Calvin, many of the other reformers 504 years ago. It's the same question that he asked many mighty women of God and men of God that lived in this 100 years that we've been living in. It's the same question that God is asking us today. Whoa! is out there and he's saying who will go for me and who can I send and so the real question this morning is not do we need another modern day reformation the real question is will we go if we want a reformation it starts with our feet we've got to go reformation only happens by going it only happens by standing up it only happens by saying this far no further Reformation is not a magic pill that we can take and it just happens. It's when we finally had enough and we say, Lord, I'm going to advance this kingdom. I'm not going to retreat. Can I ask you to stand? I felt that this morning, as I was preparing for today, God wanted me to pose this question to this church. And when I say that, I, I include myself in that. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? I feel like God's opening the door for us this morning to be commissioned just like Isaiah was commissioned that day. And so I'm going to ask us the question. If you here this morning feel like your heart has been stirred and you want to be a part of this modern day reformation, 
you're willing to put up your hand, like Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. Can you put up your hand with me this morning? Thank you for listening to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. We are a church that is passionate about knowing Christ and making Him known in our city, the nation, and the ends of the earth. For more information on who we are, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Thank you.